0: Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Kanis Albinas Makalua.
1: The me and team. Mega Bears fan. (laughs) With guest co-hosts. Warning you too.
2: (laughs) I always go Mackie. How do you say your name? Makalea?
3: Makalua. (laughs) Makalua. I've well, heard it pronounced I'd 10 I'd rather get this
4: ways. out now before we start recording. That's, That's fine. Her name is the most common one to mispronounce by a margin
0: over
3: the, the years. The very I yep.
0: I mean, it's like people have never heard of a silent H before.
3: Or have never heard of Kahlua.
4: Or they don't recognize it because of the ma before it.
3: Yeah. So,
4: like, you wouldn't immediately think coffee necessarily if you're, like, thinking of somebody's screen uh,
0: name. And then
4: I-, I could see it.
3: I thought
0: Kahlua was a type of alcohol.
3: It is. It's coffee flavored. Yeah. That explains yeah,
2: yep. it. Welcome to Polycast, episode 342. I'm warning you too, and our co-hosts are Canis Albinis.
0: Hello, all you happy little people who are also bigger than me. Uh, Makalua.
3: Did, did you get shrunk by a shrink ray or something, Canis? Uh What?
0: I'm an ant.
4: The mean team. The mean team. I've got some nice, fun news for you guys today
0: uh oh
2: and last but not least mega bears fan
4: i like fun news i figured
2: i'd
3: go
4: with the tabloid approach since you know
0: isn't the tabloid approach more like four things to do you'll never believe number three. Oh, that's true
3: Candace! i was about to do that oh <laughs> i'm awful we had the same thought because it's like hey there's a new Swift patch here's the t- here's 10 t- top 10 things and number seven you won't believe i don't know <sighs> an analysis of everything going on with the june patch because uh, that's a lot of buffs
0: i have actually played the game since since the patch now so i know what it's like
3: me too yay (laughs)
1: hooray for playing the game we podcast about yes (laughs) i've mostly played
4: dominions 5 unfortunately no. So I, w- I still won't have as much direct experience.
1: And I was playing multiplayer of all things. Ooh.
4: Ooh
0: mysterious
1: my. and spooky.
3: And it wasn't even on a Saturday night. How no, many people Saturday did you
1: night wasn't. rush? Yeah. Even <laughs> though that's been nerfed. You can
3: just well do yeah, it. Yeah, there's no longer stacking the night on a siege tower and just going, wee! Nope, not allowed anymore.
4: Sorry, all right, you can still pillage people.
3: Uh, among the- well, the- Since we're on sieging and things like that, that is one thing that got changed. The medieval and renaissance walls are now immune to the battering rams. Renaissance walls are immune to siege towers. You can actually upgrade them now, and they only work with melee and anti-cavalry units. So yes, no more putting the knight with the battering ram. I mean, come on, that makes sense. Get the horse to pull the battering ram. Wham, there.
4: Yeah, or just like get off the horse for a moment. Yeah,
3: (laughs) it sounded like the knight can't park his horse for five seconds to run the battering ram. I mean, somebody has noted that actually progression through the tech tree has been slowed down from the medieval era on by about 10%.
4: That's one of those changes. I, I think I've mentioned it in previous shows. I don't like that they took that out and made it more uniform. I liked that there was some kind of catch up mechanic so that someone's not completely out of the game, and also that it was harder to create that overwhelming lead because one of the biggest problems in Civ is not ending the game when it's over. And I don't think that this is going to help the game end more quickly when someone's starting to run away, but yeah. it will make it more difficult for somebody to start taking a lead, I guess. I um, I don't know. Yeah. Because there's a big the article, deal to me.
3: Yeah. The article saying the feedback seems positive as it slows down the otherwise exponential explosion. Wow. That was hard. <laughs> Of science from a completed campus and library that catapults you right even to more science. So yeah, it's slowing down people in the lead. But once you hit medieval, if you're getting that 10% slowdown too, it is harder for you to catch.
1: I do have to say, though, that one of my biggest pet peeves with, I think... Civ 4, Civ 5, and Civ 6 has been that in a lot of games, especially on higher difficulties, the AI in particular just flies through the tech tree and a lot of times faster than they can build the infrastructure and units that they're unlocking. So you would have an AI in the modern era in like, you know, 1600 ad but there's still you know muskets and knights and stuff running around because the fact that they've blown through the tech tree so fast means that their economy hasn't caught up to the point where they can actually build the things that they've unlocked so it's kind of like i mean it, it might as well be slowed down
4: i, I just want to point out that this was certainly not true for so far because i got massive discounts on upgrading in it
1: and well, that's with, true
4: therefore like almost immediately this when they hit rifles Everything everywhere turns into a rifle, even in cities that aren't on the front. That would be very common for Deity. It would only take them maybe two, three turns before every single melee unit they had was no longer a melee. It was, well, now a melee rifle. Uh, So Civ 4 didn't have that because of the sheer volume of bonuses the Deity AIs received.
1: And you might be right. I might just be remembering that I in Civ four would often have a lot of obsolete units because I couldn't afford to upgrade them. Yeah, yeah,
4: upgrades were much less practical unless you built for it in Civ four than they are in Civ six, where for most of the game's lifecycle, they've really been the meta way to keep your unit production decent is to build units. And there, there's the actually incentive to build units for cheap and then upgrade them using the policy card discounts. Which yeah, is, build uh, them
1: real quick before you unlock the next unit type, and then, yeah, just spend the 150 gold or whatever and upgrade them.
4: Yeah, the efficiency equation on that was flipped in Civ 4 It was generally pretty inefficient to Upgrade units with the exception like you could use a merchant to get a lot of gold and then the upside is that you could get the advanced units very quickly then that would have more time to use them against an enemy who does not have them and sometimes that that was all the difference because how quickly the AI could upgrade even on I think even difficulty like noble, which is really easy difficulty uh, relatively speaking compared to the higher ones and so forth. I still got like a 50% discount or something on upgrades. It was one of the few bonuses it got pretty universally.
1: Yeah, but in, in Civ five and six, though, it is not uncommon for me in single player anyway to see an AI that is
0: two yeah, eras
1: ahead on the tech tree of the units and, you know, buildings and stuff that they're actually creating. And it, it's, it's one of those things that just, it, like, I don't know that it necessarily breaks the game or hurts the play of the game, but it's just something that annoys me, you know, when I see it. I feel like
4: that, that's more down to poor AI's optimization of its units, though. Like, if there's nothing stopping it from actually producing those units that are more advanced.
1: Well, I mean, they, they, they get really more expensive. Bonuses. So, yeah, they, they get more expensive, though. So if you—if you if you don't have the production to build them, then it does get harder to okay. build them, especially in those cases where unlocking the new unit. Like makes the pr- earlier versions of the unit unavailable to build anymore. But this is still an AI that's getting a lot of bonuses. Maybe they're not as
4: extreme as Civ four, but the the Civ Six AI is still getting a lot of stuff. They should be able to produce these units pretty reliably if the AI were set up properly. They should. Yeah, the I know. Yeah. That this this gets us back to yeah, the AI is bad. We all know the AI is bad. <laughs> I'm aware, but like. It, that, that's really the area to tackle when it comes to this, because it's not like they can't produce them. Uh, they just don't produce
1: them. Yeah, I have a feeling that the slowing down of the tech tree uh, progress is going to be very popular among single player users and less popular among multiplayer users. Yeah, I yeah, don't know if I'm, because... I would make that generalization even.
4: I'm I not strong hit. enough in the multiplayer meta to know how games typically are decided. Because if you just globally slow everyone down 10%, then, I mean, you're just going to get slightly longer time where you're in the lead, I guess, uh, with a tech differential for units.
3: Yeah, and it comes back to the thing of trying to get to the actual completion of the game as opposed to just, well, everything else is dead. Or everything we care about killing is dead, you know, which is the thing we have on Saturday night a lot of the time.
4: My understanding is that a lot of multiplayer games are called when someone's obviously going to win.
3: Yeah, they're not giving us the right incentive to keep playing the game once it's past a certain point. So yeah. that's that's a problem, single and multiplayer.
0: Well, all they well, need is vassal states, and that'll solve that problem in multiplayer.
3: It'll help, or it'll speed
4: it up. But really, they could take some lessons from the strategy games of our past, like, say, how Master of Orion handled it, where you could just get a council victory. You could you could make something like that that's only for
1: ending a game that's over. So clearly, Phil wants the return of the Apostolic Palace. Got it. Next patch. <laughs>
4: There were some ideas in the Apostolic Palace that were decent. The, The main issue of it was that it was so broken in its balancing. And the reason it was broken wasn't that you had diplo votes. It was that you could build it in minority religions and then control diplomacy uh, without anybody having any real counterplay, other than, I guess, just defying resolution repeatedly. So it was, <laughs> which could cause a lot of unrest.
0: What were the requirements to win? All you had to do was have it in every, have it, have one city with the religion in every?
4: Every civ, yeah. Every And sip. then you needed, it was more than half, I think it was two-thirds majority
0: voting for you. Yeah, yeah. Which you could easily but, do if only one city in each civ has that.
4: Yeah, or you what you would do is you would found it. You would you would switch very briefly to a minority religion, uh, build the apostolic palace in that religion, then switch back to the religion of a big AI that likes you, and then spread the apostolic palace to that big AI who who loves you because you're running their religion, not the apostolic palace religion. And then that I AI is going to vote for you to win, and uh. then you just to send it to one city of each other civ and you have two-thirds majority of the religion derp yeah and that was not broken but conceptually there's nothing wrong with I mean the, the world conquest world world conquest the world Congress is uh, in a lot of ways a spiritual successor to that that's done better but you, you could just put in a victory vote just straight up and have some conditions required to unlock it and then if people agree that the game is over they can just end the game that way or they could stop playing. But you could also have conditions under which the AI will just say, okay, this is over, and vote you a win. So that's one thing you could do. Yeah. The other thing you could do is just mechanically speed up the game. In other words, rather than making tech slower, you make it easier to race through the tech tree more quickly. Both through UI performance, uh, UI game performance, and then just how long this takes in turn count. That's something you could do, but it would... I hesitate to recommend that just because of how imbalanced it would make the unit movement versus tech pace
0: issue. I will say... It's one of the reasons
1: that I have a a hard time just even playing on quick, you know, game speed just because I feel like I can't get anything done in terms of getting my units where I need to get them in time to actually do something useful.
4: Yeah. That's been a problem in every Civ, where the game speed has been an option, and I I don't see a good way
1: to solve
0: it. I will say that in the game that I've played most recently... It was a standard standard size, no standard speed, large map with twelve players on it, so a little overcrowded. And even at turn three hundred to five hundred, I was not having trouble with turn times. It was like ten seconds per turn, which is not bad. In
4: between turn times. Yes, in between turn times. Yeah, I'm, I'm much more focused on the, the UI aspect. But yeah, you're right.
1: With modern computers, they've optimized it quite a bit better than Civ Five was.
0: I bet if we At played least- Civ Five now, it would be pretty fast, too.
1: At least until airplanes show up. And then you got to sit and watch the dang things take off, fly halfway across the map, and then go back. Quick movement. <laughs> yeah. Well.
4: Yeah. You do. You definitely want quick movement on if you want to end the game quickly. But yeah, it's such a grind to to manage so many cities because there's no like there's no looping, there's no like hot key queuing, there's no build wealth or research. Although that you would have to balance those for Civ Six because you, know, you couldn't do a one to one conversion like you did in Civ Four. But you could make something like that, or you could just make projects loop. Until you tell the city to stop.
0: Yeah, two turn projects in 15 cities is a big pain.
3: Well, I guess that's a knock on effect from production being buffed just a little bit. Yeah, I so had what? no that production. That was an issue
4: in earlier patches too, though.
0: I had no production problems in my game.
3: Yeah, because I, I do know in earlier games, even both solo and in multiplayer, we were all sometimes getting into positions where if it didn't put us in the right place, you had like no production. You had a capital start that was all grasslands, which okay, I can make a big city, but I can't make crap in it. But they. They buffed a number of different things: lumber mills, pastures, quarries. Got them to output so they're closer to mines. They put, they took away the river bonus for lumber mills, which yeah. all of us went. Wait a minute.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's then, a hit scratcher.
0: And then we decided they, it was smart.
4: They also reduced the cost of later era stuff, and that's not an insignificant thing either. This is you know, this is like a double hit to the costs of things previously.
3: Yeah, no, because sometimes you got even when you had a, even before the or even with after the buffs. Sometimes you still get some of the end game stuff that even if you had a city with really good even your best producing city it would do like multiple hundreds a turn, and it would still take ten turns for something. And it's like this is ridiculous. Yeah, and that oh, makes that's like space parts and such.
0: Yes, Dido's achievement to build your new capital on four different continents is now actually achievable as opposed to having to build it for 40 turns on each place.
2: Because normally we never, the games that we play on turncast, we never get really into the power being an issue, but uh, have you guys found that power is is something you get concerned about in later play games, later era games.
4: It really adds a lot of production.
0: Yes, it is very nice. It makes things so much better. Problem is you got to deal with the
3: pollution. Yeah, because you're going to hit coal first and you're going to want to, oh, let me put coal plants everywhere. But then, you know, you've produced half the CO2 for the whole game and just... Like maybe twenty or thirty turns, and because it takes that long, especially now that later research has slowed down, it's going to take you a little longer to get to the slightly cleaner oil or even some of the renewable energy type things further down. Boy, you know it's an odd thing in a game when I'm like, "Woo, nuclear plants!" You know, I'm not happy to see uranium for the fact of blowing up things, but happy to see uranium because hey, at least now my pollution's going to go down to a tiny level.
2: I've been looking at this chart that was here, the district cheat sheet that uh, you. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I understand it completely. Is it just the gist of how you should build a city with the different? sectors, Theatre Square, production, and what have you? Yeah, it's
3: like... It's like an ideal city and like each of those well they're not districts, but like where they've put a production area together. Like ideally you've got like a mine and a quarry or a couple of mines next to the industrial zone. You know, it's like a super ideal city layout and you could pick and choose bits of that depending on how your actual cities in the terrain looks.
2: So so maybe I'm doing it wrong and maybe this explains why I never do that much or <laughs> do the very rarely do I do well in the civ games we play, but when I go to build a district, I'm looking for for the plus five for the campus you know that where the most production is that doesn't destroy production or something i've already built i don't really think about putting things together properly or aligning them to each other is that what i'm doing wrong
1: well yes. in, in a lot of situations you just might not be able to because in, in a lot of instances you can't remove a luxury resource right so if a luxury resource is sitting in the place where this map would say you need to be building your industrial zone then you just can't build this map like this is looks like it's just assuming a flat empty place with no resources and everything being exactly where it needs to be and in reality how often is that actually going to happen in a game
0: well and it says it reality, says it says right there, this is not ideal light city layout.
3: Yeah, like the production, it's showing over you what a good high production industrial zone and in its production should be next to it. Or like with the culture, it'd be great if you have something next to it. But yeah, searching for that bigger plus, you can't get everything in one city. You have to specialize. And it is good to try and find the highest plus things. It's like when we're trying to settle cities, I do try to look for ones that have the mountains because that's the easiest one to manage for science. You can get that little alcove and get two or three or four or sometimes even mountains. And you have this really great science. City, but it might be crap for everything else.
0: Industrial is actually the most one, the one you probably have to plan for the most now, because Mm. you want to put it in a place where you can put an aqueduct and a dam or maybe even a canal right next to it, because that gives a pretty big boost.
1: Industrial hubs still get, because I, I think I remember a time in the game where industrial hubs got a bonus for being next to harbors, or was that only ever the commercial hub?
0: That was the commercial hub. The only reason you would put an industrial hub next to a harbor is maybe to build the Venetian Arsenal.
1: Okay. That might be why I would often think about trying to do that.
0: And I'm not sure that even requires an adjacent harbor. I know it requires an adjacent industrial zone, but I don't know about harbor. But yeah, the layout here is optimized for showing what is good for what, as opposed to where the best things are.
3: Yeah, it, it's, it's like a reference chart for what you need to be thinking about for each district for a uh, the best placement but you can't sometimes you can get cities where you can't get the best placement but you can get a decent placement it'd be great if you could make a city do all the things but you really can't make a city do all the things unless you get really lucky with the bestest most legendary start ever
2: i thought the article's uh discussion about diplomacy was interesting when i read read it down uh, but a diplomacy is in a weird spot
3: yeah it's better but it's still kind of eh. i mean you're trying to do a diplomatic victory now with the, the victory points thing and then they changed that from when it was originally put in with Gathering Storm and I'm still instructions unclear should I just kill them instead?
2: And and the whole thing about grievances to me it seemed it's just noise I don't really like the common issue was confusion and lack of clarity on on the grievance system I gotta agree with that point.
0: (laughs) It does seem a little bit weird it seems like it's something that you have to have inside knowledge of how computers work really well like programming to understand how it works like it's not very clear to people who are just kind of playing the game.
3: It's almost like I need a list on the side to look At if I do X, how much grievances is that going to give me? But then once I've built up X number of grievances, What's the practical effect in the game? I mean, yeah, it makes people mad and less likely to do trade deals. Okay, but the AI is kind of still bad at the trade deals. Because that was another thing they pointed out. I think later in the AI sections, they're still rolling up and asking you for random gold. You go, oh, I'm going to make my threats. You're on the other side of the planet from me. <sighs> Come on.
4: They're also not as happy about declaring on you if you were furious as they were in, like, say, Sephar. Or if you were the to cuss, it's very likely they'd declare on you soon. Mm. AI and so 6 is not nearly so consistent with that. You're going to tell them to shove off and a lot of cases they just won't do anything about
1: it. I would say that maybe the, the biggest issue that I have with the grievances is that there's just not very much that not, not very much actionable things that you can do with the grievances. They just kind of like sit there and it's like, OK, well, I can denounce them or I can declare war on them. But like I can't you know, you don't have any of those features like in Civ 4 where you could go to the other AIs and like talk about like these sorts of things like, hey, this AI did this to me. And does he annoy you as much as he annoys me. You know, there's no pact of secrecy thing like there was early in Civ in- <laughs> <five>, V. <and I, laughs>
0: but the pact Phil's of secrecy papers. did nothing. It did well, nothing.
1: Could have no, been something it, of if the better design, but... I've uh, I, I said in the nothing. past that I think the pact of secrecy had a lot of potential in Civ 5 that was just never never fulfilled and I was disappointed that they just removed it rather than trying to find something useful to do and I think that the grievances and a lot of the like what is it called the diplomatic visibility and stuff like that that's just baked into Civ 5 would have made that idea work a lot better had they chosen to revisit it and try to implement it in Civ 6
0: well I think they did they just didn't quite finish the job they tried and they did implement the fact that you need grievances for the for the Belly. Right. Because that's what that's what determines which cost of spellies you can take is how many grievances they have you have against them.
1: Right. And, and another big issue that I've just always had with diplomacy in, in both in Civ Six in particular compared to Civ V is that there's very little, if anything, that you can do to actually change the AI's behavior.
3: And like in their opinion of you, it's really easy to get a negative opinion by doing all the grievances, but it's really hard to bring it back up.
1: And they took a lot of things out that allowed you to do that. Like in Civ V, you know, if you if their units got captured by barbarians and and you recaptured them you you had that option to gift them back to the civ that originally built them and stuff like that was a great way to to build a relationship with an ai civ or to repair a damaged relationship and there's just not very much like that in Civ 6. Once things start to go downhill, it feels a lot more like it's just a downward spiral unless you accidentally stumble over satisfying their agenda, in which case they just <laughs> yeah. flip on a dime and all of a sudden you're like their best friend forever. You know, you and, you built one more naval unit and now Harold Hardrada goes from hating you to thinking you're like the coolest dude ever.
3: Yeah, <laughs> and when you try to negotiate trade deals, they want so much of an imbalanced trade deal. It's like, well, that's why you don't even bother sometimes.
1: Yeah, it's a tra-
2: Trade the trading is the most frustrating part to me. Where you try to go, okay, well, I'll, I'll add another resource into that. No, and they won't. They won't. They won't even consider it. And it's like, don't even bother the trade system. It, I find that with the AI trading is the most frustrating of, of interactions with them. It's waste my time.
1: And especially since the game has no market system or anything for resources, you can't be like, hey. I have a monopoly on marble. If you want marble, you got to go through me and I can charge pretty much whatever I want for it because I'm the only person in town that's selling it. And the AIs are just like, no, I'll give you what I want to give you based on how much I like you not on how rare the the resource is or how much I might need the resource so you know again there's just it doesn't feel like there's much that you can do assertively to influence relationships other than just as soon as you meet them if you want to be friends try sending that delegation otherwise just accept that the relationship is probably going to spiral out of control unless like I said you hit their agenda condition and then it's just easy to maintain relationships with them pretty much regardless of what you do
4: speaking of
1: trades did this
4: patch actually get rid of the most recent stuff where you could trade loop the ai into giving you infinite money yes i thought or that was, was that, fixed yes. in the previous yes.
1: patch wasn't it it,
4: yeah. it was allegedly fixed but then spiffing red did a video showing another way to do it after the last patch so
3: yeah well with trades and resources i love what endless space 2 did is both luxury type resources or amenities and the strategic resources you accumulate them as units but then you can go to the marketplace and you have a cap you can't keep an infinite amount but then you can go and sell it for currency or trade or you know like you sell off a bunch of military resource because you need some luxury resource or something if you had something like that in sieve that would be great because you could put those out there you're producing an excess because in our multiplayer games i always have the ai coming up for iron even when it's like in the modern era it's like what do you want this iron oh, okay here have it for some cash but even if you could do that throughout the game and it would even streamline it for between uh, human players because there's a lot of times we want to make deals like, hey, I didn't get X. Can I buy that off of you and something, you know, but you could still get it back and forth between all the players. That's me. I just like that system. I think it would be interesting and so It sounds so like you're saying
1: that instead of just going to an individual AI, you just put it on some kind of like market and then any <laughs> AI who wants it will buy it from there yeah you're saying Uh uh-huh
3: yeah and the value goes up and down so if you flood the market then that thing gets devalued and then it's really cheap to pick up so like if you had a bunch that you were holding on to and you wanted to get it if you were in a multiplayer game you wanted to get to the human players you could sell all of it off at once and then the humans could go in and be like you could tell them i'm about to sell all that they can go in and buy it up really quick
1: yeah that does sound like it's very much in in line with what i was kind of talking about i i bought endless you said endless space right
3: yeah, Endless Space 2, actually. Yeah,
1: I, I bought it. I haven't gotten around to actually booting it up and playing it yet, though.
3: Yeah, you can could, you could even buy that. You can buy the ships and military units that way, too. Hmm. It's mercenaries kind of a thing, I guess, in a sense, because you don't build them yourselves. But you can, there's always different levels of ships available to buy. And you could, like, you need an instant fleet? Boom, if you got enough money, you can have an instant fleet. <laughs> Let's see. What else did we talk about? What else patch notes here? Diplomacy, the AI kind of still is kind of stupid as much as I mean, we love it, but sometimes derp,
0: derp, derp. They love taking initiation rights.
3: <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I, I had not noticed that, but I I, I'll either. believe it. Well, then, go, then
1: there's ah, all the UI oh, updates. And a lot of those are really nice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah
3: and various quality of life things for different England, Canada, and France all had some little things. And Oh, we had the yeah, the power wind.
1: England feels like they get completely revised like every other patch. England is just a completely new civilization.
3: <laughs> well, they did get put
0: down to almost as bad as Tamar.
1: But yeah, no changes for her that I remember. Well, they, so buffed,
0: like- they buffed the Renaissance walls, so... Yeah. yeah,
3: and she likes big walls, and she cannot lie. Uh, oh, I mean, we did get the new map type. So far, I've only played Seven Seas, which was well. It's literally what it says. There's seven seas. It's actually a more land-focused map. But we, I think we figured out it had more land than Pangaea does, actually. Probably. But it also, is it, it, it still
1: th- a, a continental map, or is it like one of those things where like the whole map is land, and then there's just water kind of embedded within?
3: I want to say it's kind of in the middle because there's bodies of water that go off to the edge, and you de- there's definitely a separation at least on one side with the land, but then there's also the big snaky mountain change which was chains which was making it hard to get from player to player to help support and go after the ai we were kind of broken up into different zones almost it was still fun though
1: i have to say i've still really missed i think it was called continents plus in civ 5 which had like the continents map but then it also generated lots of little islands and archipelago chains and stuff like that that weren't big enough to actually get you to another continent, but, you know, did stretch out in the ocean and gave you, you know, like, gave you some, made naval units feel more useful because you would actually have an opportunity to explore and find, you know, barbarians and city-states and goody huts and stuff like that, as opposed to just sailing around a coastline until you just can't sail anymore and then coming back.
0: I did a small continents map, and it's the it might be my favorite map type now because the continents are small and makes the oceans important, but at the same time they're not so small that you can't build more than two cities on them.
4: How often do you share a continent with an AI on that script?
0: Pretty often. I was Dido and I shared a continent with Germany and they were never a threat because there was a big mountain range between us. But I settled a city right in the dead spot where you could get through it so they were done couldn't get through that
3: yeah that was the one nice thing on the seven seas map is on one hand it was a pain to navigate around but you could block out an AI just by being having finding that gap and getting into it going nope you can't come through here so even if they did declare war it's like well good luck with that and the one other thing mentioned down there with quality of life is is actually a thing they didn't do which was helping a little bit with the coastal cities because you get flooded so quickly once global warming starts because the AI sometimes even in our multiplayer games will be ahead and they'll start producing coal and start polluting everything. And, and like suddenly the global warming level has gone up. And guys, I just found this shiny black stuff. What? And so you don't have the technology to put in like the flood barriers and things. So your cities, if you're close to the coast and a lot of maps, you have at least a few and you're getting sunk under so fast. It's like, I don't have a chance to respond to myself. And then suddenly, well, I guess I'm in Landis now.
2: This one, this article did not discuss what I, I find as is an issue is resources. Sometimes you're going to be in a game and you don't get those nighter resources and don't get coal and and it can really stymie your game and it doesn't make any mention of that
1: and then there's the other games where you just got like three sources of a resource like right next to your capital and it's like well i'm never gonna want for that
3: the resource distribution has been a little weird lately because i had that game the other day where i had nothing i got no strategic i went I, I got horses and that was about it. I didn't did I get iron. I might've gotten iron. But then once we were past that point, I couldn't get niter. I couldn't get coal or oil. I had to go settle some city. Oh yeah. I had to go settle city way off on a sandy Island to find coal. i mean, not coal oil. And it's like, I think I had to buy some really ridiculous string of tiles to get to the one coal source. that was anywhere remotely close to me. And it's like, this is crazy. This yeah, is a I single do, player game. I would have been toast.
1: I do like that. The mechanics do give you a reason to have to keep exploring and settling new cities later in the game to get access to these resources, but I I feel like it should be to get more resources and not to be like in a situation just. where you've got nothing and your only hope is to just build this city on some island somewhere that has an oil on it and now maybe you can be competitive.
2: That's if you can build it with a loyalty.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, because yeah, that's oh, a problem too.
2: If you're in that position where you don't have the resources and you can't settle for it because of loyalty pressure, it it becomes a very frustrating game to me. But
1: yeah, and, and a lot of the era, and a lot of the strategics come from city states, but again, Civ 6 doesn't really give you much that you can actually, you know, assertively do to gain influence with city-states. It's just a, such a very passive system because you don't have any of the gold bribing or anything like that anymore. And the city-states only ever offer you one quest at a time and if it's a quest that you're just never going to be able to do, well, you've got to wait a whole era before another one pops up. I really wish and, the city-states offered multiple quests each era so that you could at least fulfill one of them.
3: And <laughs> where is the AI getting these 110 billion envoys from? Because I've seen sc- I've seen it in our own games where they'll have like 20 envoys in one city, which is par- partially due to the Governor Amani, but it. I've seen one where somebody had 60, an AI had 60 in one city. How?
1: They're probably just all competing with each other for one city state and dumping all of their envoys into it.
3: But still, even in one game, I'm trying to fi- I'm trying to think of a game where I would have had 60 across the whole game.
2: What's, they're giving them the bonus because they can't make the AI play better than you. So they're just giving them that bonus to have lots of envoys.
1: I don't know, in my single player games, I'm usually running the, what is it, charismatic leader policy for like yep. most of the game where you just get the plus two envoys points per turn and I oftentimes am the suzerain of like every city state in the game except for like I said the two or three that the AIs have just decided are going to be the city states that they all compete over and you know there's like 50 envoys from AIs in those and I've got 10 envoys in every other city state so I, I can imagine I can definitely see having 60 envoys in a single city state by late in the game I,
2: I find that it's, if it's also relative to the, the difficulty level, like if you're you're playing at a lower difficulty, the chances are you're going to be able to be the suzerain for the majority of the city-states, but higher ones, that's when the AI gets the majority of the of the envoys.
1: And it might also, I don't know, depend on game speed, because I don't know if, if the, the number of influence points you get, I don't think that scales with game speed, so the longer the game speed, the more envoys you're going to generate over the course of the game. No, so if you're playing point. all your games on quick, maybe you don't see 60 envoys, but if you're playing on standard all the time, then maybe that's pretty common. All right. So the next topic is we have a forum talk topic on Civ Fanatics by A Clue Without titled Devs Discuss AI, World Congress and Other Things. And this topic is referring to a Reddit post about considering the changes to diplomatic victory, comma, it would be nice to have a spy mission to gather intel on the Congress and use diplo visibility to predict votes in which they apparently were, someone was interviewing, I'm not sure exactly what the context of this was, but they've got quotes from, I guess, an actual developer in the game talking about, you know, some of the the failings and issues and and things that they've struggled to uh, to implement and get right. And one of the things that I found interesting is that it looks like we've got a quote from a developer basically saying that Civ is a single-player game with multiplayer slapped on top. And like, wow, that sounds like a really unusual thing to hear from an actual developer well, they
4: weren't saying that like it was a good thing though they they, they said that that's the case unfortunately like, yeah no, right thread.
1: yeah but I, e- even that like that seems like just to me like an unusual concession or confession to actually get from someone <laughs> who actually works on the project
4: maybe but i was impressed by it so yeah
1: no <laughs> it was all said yeah, it's, it's probably going to a positive reception because of the candidness of the statement. But it, like I said, it just I read that and I'm like, are you sure this is coming from a developer? Like, do we have to check this person's credentials? It is. Yeah, so...
0: There's actually a
1: lot of stuff they say here I agree with. I
4: don't agree with all the changes they make for the game, but reading through this made me feel a lot better about the direction of the game, actually.
0: Also, bear in mind that this was posted almost a month ago now, so...
4: The
2: gentleman in question is, by the way, uh, for Axis developer. Right. I can attest to that. I really thought the comment that was in here about Sid Meier was on record that said that people would not be playing Civ, would not be playing the game like Civ if they actually had friends, I thought. It's (laughs) just why he didn't develop Civ Civ, Civ 1 with mp i thought oh that's that's i did not know that sid meyer head was on the record for that but oh boy <laughs> it was a different you, you time you have to man. understand
4: yeah the, the early 1990s where it was very different in terms of how acceptable it was to be playing spending a lot of time in games compared to Especially now.
3: strategy games <laughs> what kind of nerd are you? Oh, my God. Well, it's just
1: like the non ubiquitousness of the Internet. I mean, like just finding someone to play a game like that with would be insanely difficult.
4: Yeah, that's true. I was a kid at that age. It would have been very difficult to get a multiplayer game like over the Internet with another kid in like before 1995. This is not something that was practical.
1: Well, and especially a game as long as Civ where you would have to have an internet connection for that entire time back in the days of uh, dial up when you up have to compete him. with the with your little sister who wants to be on the phone with, you know, all of her middle school friends and stuff like that. So We actually had yeah. a second phone line
4: just for that when I was young, but Yeah,
2: we did too, actually. We had a second phone line. Yeah.
4: <laughs> but yeah. But, gaming was not as popular and it was a lot less practical to do multiplayer online. Now, hot seat stuff was more common, but Again, uh, a turn-based strategy like that not going to be very common use case.
1: Yeah, and I don't know how long a game of Civ One would typically take to play, but I, I imagine that it was still a pretty long game to play compared to other games available at the time.
4: Probably it, probably longer also because back then the UI conventions were not as good for most games, and it certainly yeah, but was the mechanics were also a
1: lot simpler. So
4: they were, but you, like
1: we're talking about sta- the
4: era of stacks without stack move. Yeah. And that's oh, not trivial. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's actually quite a chore when you have 100 units and you want to move all 100 units this turn and next turn and the turn after that. Like That adds up really quickly, and that's something we might have forgotten or didn't experience depending on uh, how old you are, but it, it was not ideal, to put it mildly. Something like Warlords like 2...
1: And sometimes I feel like they brought that back for Civ Five and Civ Six. No no more stacks. Here's your carpet of 100 units that you've got to move through this mountain pass. It's still not 300
4: inputs plus per turn.
1: No, it's
4: not. Uh, Yes, you could do the inputs more quickly back then because they weren't uh, taxing the systems relative to their era the same degree. But my gosh, uh, that that was not made up for (laughs) with the sheer volume.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I actually just saw, you know, kind of off on a tangent here, uh, Fantasy Flight just announced uh, some new expansions for the second edition of X-Wing, and one of them is apparently they're going to have some kind of squad movement tool where you can group, like, all of your little ships together and move them all as one unit in order to save time on larger fleet battles. And I'm like, oh man, I wish Civ six would have something like that.
4: You know what did have something like that? And I just mentioned it, It is Warlords 2 from the same era as Civ 1 and 2. They had stacked limits. They had limited stacking back then. It was for the its era incredible. Just incredible how well that was done. Much better than Civ at the time. I know that's that's somewhat heresy, but back then, Warlords 2 and 3 were better than their contemporary Civ games by miles. That flipped pretty quickly once Warlords 4 and on came out, but... And then Warlords died as a series, unfortunately, because their design team split up. But those are some really good games. And even Modern Civ could learn from some of their conventions.
1: Let's see what what else is in this interview. So there's some talk about the ARP uh, roleplay element in single player Civ versus, you know, the almost complete lack thereof in multiplayer.
4: This is one I can't agree with. Like, you you really cannot do both. There's no realistic way to do both. Aside from, like, letting people play on low difficulties and role play against the AI, like, however... Even though the AI is not going to role play back, you just can't do it because fundamentally you are creating opponents with two different sets of goals. So you're going to have two game modes no matter what, if you go this route. I could and maybe
1: see a situation in which maybe they have a Civ specific victory condition sort of thing where like instead of the agendas for each Civ just playing into diplomacy, that actually is a victory condition. And then you might okay. be role-playing the Civilization a little bit more. And, you know, may, especially if there's multi- multiple possible victory conditions for each Civ. And, like, either you pick which victory condition you want in game setup, or it's randomly rolled for you when the the game starts. So the other players don't exactly know what your victory condition is. And that's something that I see in a lot of board games with hidden knowledge. Especially, you know, traitor games. Where, right. traitor games, not traitor with a d traitor <laughs> with a t games where you know you have like the the secret saboteurs or whatever and you know maybe there's like players kind of in the middle where you don't know what their victory condition is and they kind of act like a wild card so that's something that i could maybe see working in the context of something like civilization but it would be a very different game design to what we have now like that's not something that they would just throw into civ 6 that would be civ 7 kind of we're throwing out all the existing victory conditions and placing them with this completely new paradigm Sort of. i agree
4: on both counts you 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 could build a model like that that works It would be in very difficult to balance with the number of Civs that are in the Civ game. And it would be a very, very different game from how any of the Civ titles have been so far. But you you could make a functional and very fun game with that as long as you had the balance correct. And it yeah, be balance would be but interesting, but man, that would be so different. <laughs>
0: Back in Civ four we had the Rise and Fall of Civilization mod, which had historical victory.
1: Yeah, I remember really liking that mod. I didn't play it a lot, but the little bit that I played of it was really cool. And I was actually trying to keep up with the, I think the same people or the same person, I don't remember if it was one person or a team of people, were working on a version of it for Civ five that I guess just never actually like made it to release. But they had like a website for it and everything with development updates. And I would follow it from time to time, but I, I don't think it ever actually came out. And that was a real shame.
0: I think he got like a phd or something and had to do something else
1: yeah life happens i know unfortunately
0: (laughs) but i remember seeing the the screenshots of the very end of the progress and it looked pretty good yeah but
1: i I almost kind of wish like he would have just released what he had and like let other modders finish it or something
0: i liked the part in the thread where it talked about you know we're going to make a a we make a concerted effort when adding this stuff to the game Like, especially hint systems, that we don't actually make the game lie to the player, which is something that we talk about frequently in context of another studio, but (laughs) they specifically say that they didn't didn't add a system that would have been really helpful, quote-unquote, because if they had added it and the, the change happened on the turn, It would make it look like the AI was lying to you. And it's a very good thing to not do that because then people get mad at you. Yes. Which mechanic was this? They were We're talking about making, making a hint system where it'd be like, Harold is keeping an eye on Nubia, that somebody is going to do something to vote against somebody in the World Congress. And if the circumstances behind that vote changed between turns, it would do something different than it said it would do. And then people would be mad for the game lying to them.
1: Yeah, that happened uh, quite often in Civ Five with the spies where they'd tell you that so-and-so Civ is plotting against you. And then, like, you start mobilizing your forces for war. And then, I guess, because you built a couple extra units and the relative military strengths changed, that AI decides, nope, not going to attack them. And then you feel like you just kind of wasted a lot of time and effort.
4: Although the, you, the military units you built kind of serve their purpose there. The, to me, that's when you think lying Turned, in Civ, yeah. there is like the, the most obvious example to me actually came from Civ Five was when a siege unit on a siege unit would say ranged attack and then you would right click and it would move. To me, that is the kind of just straight up unacceptable outcome.
1: Well, that's a uh, UI issue, not a like, like I think they're yeah. talking about like building an actual mechanic into the game where the game deliberately lies to you, not, you know, like a bug or a UI. OK, map.
4: yeah, I mean, both are both matter a lot. So Oops. I don't want to discount that like the the majority of the lies of the other studio we are referencing are UI lies. There's only a couple that are mechanical like misdirections.
1: And, and that happens that's, in, that's, in Civ 6, what you're talking about, where like you're trying to move a unit over into the fog of war and like something blocks them. And then the unit decides to move back or follow a different route. And you're like, no, that's not the path you said you were going to take. And now I hate all that. my that's units been are in out there
4: of, since Civ Four at least and maybe, well, and I don't they, know about before that, because you couldn't give the same kind of orders before that. But at least in Civ 4, that's been an Civ issue. Six that,
1: there was a patch for Civ 6 that like made it worse. And I was like, uh, why would you do that?
4: Here's another thing that Warlords 2 did better in the early <laughs> 90s. When this happened in Warlords 2, you know what the game would do? It would just stop the unit. And then you would have and then you could move it again <laughs> the way you want it to move.
0: Which is still the best solution, anybody who's yes, listening. Yes, That is
4: still the best implementation that I've seen so far on how to handle this. There's no automated generated pathing from an unforeseen obstacle is going to consistently do what the player wants. So in that case, because it's not particularly common, just stop the unit, please. It's simpler to implement from an algorithm standpoint. It, it's more consistently with the player wants more often, please.
0: then <sighs> they talk about whether or not we should be able to influence resolutions at each World Congress. I was somewhat less convinced by this. Although it does make sense that it would be a major problem to set up.
4: Yeah, if you do allow players to influence it, then you would need to get them a lot more tightly near each other in terms of their utility. So that it's it's a non-obvious choice, consistently a non-obvious choice, which resolution to put up.
1: Yeah, like the fact that you are oftentimes specifically targeting specific civilizations means you can't really justify bribing another civilization to vote against their interests and Only their interest, you know, if it's something that affected everybody equally, that's one thing, you know, you can maybe make a case for one civ biting the bullet in that case. But like, if you're actually targeting, no, this player can't do X for the next 30 turns, there's no justification for you being able to convince that player to do that. Unless it's kind of thing where you're literally issuing them an ultimatum. Like, you will vote for this or I will kill you.
3: Which works better on a human player and not the AI so much.
1: Right. (laughs) And even
4: then, you have to be careful how you utilize those kinds of things (laughs) from a practical standpoint.
1: I still feel like the, the worst issue with the World Congress is just the fact that right now it feels so undirected. Like, there's no way to... I'd rather be able to actually just pick what the available resolutions are going to be than to, you know, influence what the other civs are going to vote for.
0: Well, that's also mentioned down here as another problem with it. It's hard to balance because the resolutions aren't balanced to each other, which means that it's really difficult to deal with how, for instance, if you get one type of resolution and you want a different one, you save your faith so that you can... or you save your favor for the next time when you might get something... Whereas if you chose it every time, you might have the issue where, oh, the AI really thinks that this other thing is important and there's nothing you can do about it because there's more of them than there are of you.
1: But then again, the AIs are also all supposed to have their own interests and agendas and objectives. So it should not necessarily be the case that all the AIs should vote for one thing just because like they should each be voting for different things for different reasons.
4: Uh, There's a lot of shoulds, but uh, this is something where... I would say it was, it's probably not that easy. To I was going to say they all call
0: way. they all call on the same AI scripts. So, yeah. right. There and their their personalization AI stuff the modifiers don't change enough to make it really different I don't think. I I'm, I'm not even sure if that stuff is even affected in right? mean, yeah, yeah,
4: you could tether it if you wanted, but I still don't think you would get a result that would be apparently coherent to even the average player. If you tried it, I would be surprised that that was possible without, like, really simplifying the resolutions.
0: And even if you did, you'd never know what you were going to get anyway. It would just be a crapshoot. So it would yeah. effectively be exactly the same as you've got now.
4: Yeah, this isn't an easy thing to handle or to make ideal or whatever. It's not even easy to define an ideal Certainly not one that everyone would agree on. But even if you were like just to operate in the context of defining an ideal World Congress for one person, even that isn't actually easy to do. And then if you have disagreements on preferences, it becomes a nightmare. So
0: yeah, it, yeah, I'm not going to give them too hard time on this one. The fact that it works as well as it does is, is pretty imp- impressive considering.
4: Yeah. yeah, this is not an area of weakness for the game relative to others by any stretch. Yeah,
2: well, there's a comment here about it could for not doing things is, can be maliciously boiled down to cause of. Fair access is lazy, uh, but trust me, when making decisions, we're putting on man hours, we're doing our best to give our players the most value we can. I think that's a very f- fair comment. I mean, you know, depending on how you if, if you remember the game from when Civ V first came out with MP crashing nearly every 10, 20, 15 turns to playing a Civ Six game now MP, even though there's still critique of it and it's still slapped on. It is ten times better. I mean, than what it was when multiplayer first came out. Uh, you can uh, actually play ago. it,
4: so it's more yeah. than ten <laughs> times better. Yeah, well, yeah, a hundred <laughs>
2: times better. But it, it is, it's, it's. I think the game has come so far. Even if MP was just a slap on, and I think that's an unfair critique as well. Um,
4: but there, I did. think mean that they don't mean that from an implementation standpoint as much as they do from a design standpoint. Oh, I see what There's you mean. Not as many people play MP, and it's. Like, when you make agendas and such for the AI, like, there's no way a multiplayer person's going to adhere to them. So there's always going to be a design disconnect between your single player and multiplayer, unless you do something like Mega Bear's fan alluded to, with, like, Civ-specific victory conditions that would tie those things together somehow. Short of something like that, you're always going to have this disconnect to some degree, unless you just make all the AIs cutthroat.
2: And somewhere within this thread in here, I think I read somewhere that there's an emphasis now where there were a reliance or they're ad- acknowledging at least the requirement for mods to improve MP, which I thought was interesting. I thought, oh, OK, well, I'm-. so there are a lot of mods out there for MP, that's for sure.
1: And there are a lot of lazy game developers uh, and <laughs> publishers out there. And, yeah. and I, I definitely do not think that Firaxis is one of those. Like, I often hold up Firaxis as being one of the better developers in terms of uh, listening to fan feedback and actually taking that feedback to heart and using it to improve the game. And one of the, the best examples that I would give for that is Gods and Kings expansion for Civilization V, of which the feature list basically read off the most popular wish list items from the forums. Oh, the people wanted religion back in Civ Five? Well, here, here's an expansion that adds religion and adds espionage and, you know, fleshes out the, the units and the combat mechanics and stuff like that. That ex- expansion to me literally just looked like here's all the things you said you wanted in vanilla Civ that we couldn't deliver for whatever reason. But now you have it. And then Brave New World went on to like actually revolutionize the game. So you know I mean, they, they definitely put a lot of work into those. And they definitely listened to fan feedback and, and took it to heart for, for those expansions in particular.
4: I would argue that in most cases, calling the developers lazy is not reasonable. I mean, you can make the case for like Steam Shovelware or stuff like that. Okay, those guys are lazy. But mostly, <laughs> developers are trying to do a good job. And they are trying to do what they think the most people will like.
1: Right. The, the uh, problem usually is, usual, is higher up in the executive ladder where you've got people making business decisions that are not in the best interest of the game for the you know players. Sometimes.
4: And sometimes it's a matter of priorities because project management is hard and the skills to be good at project management do not necessarily and really frequently will not overlap with being a good designer or a programmer. Uh, so... You get lots of prioritization mistakes. Uh, some of them are objective prioritization mistakes. And some of them are subjective because there's no easy way, even at the corporate level, to tell which particular change is more likely to correlate better to sales compared to another one. Like There's, there's no hard cutoff there where you can just say, OK, well, if I patch this, I'm going to get like $10 more versus going $100. No, it doesn't work like that. So it's not easy to do. But I think that's one of the most common areas where they make a mistake. And sometimes it's really easy to point out like objective mistakes. Like if a developer is willing to spend a significant amount of man hours on removing an esoteric exploit over something like a user interface lie, that's a common example from said other developer uh, that we're <laughs> referencing. Like the, the number of people who are even interacting with that quote unquote exploit are tiny by their own data. Like they, they publish the data, like, uh, like sub 0.1% of people even play these nations. And then on top of that, there's no way every single person playing these nations knows about the X flight. So why would you fix that over something that is going to impact a large volume of players in, as every start and in every game to at least some degree? I don't know. Yeah. But, but like that, that's pretty, that that's uh, as close to objective as you can get in terms at of the, making a mistake in priority. At when the very least. something like designing or like adding one feature versus making the UI a little better, I can at least understand where they're coming from. Although I still disagree that the priorities in Civ 6 are even close to ideal uh, just because of the, the volume of time that people spend trying to end games. And I mean, pretty much everyone complains that the late game is slow. And a lot of that comes down to how quickly they can actually end the
1: game. Yeah, At the very least, wait for Spiffing Britt to make a perfectly balanced video before you <laughs> fix the exploit.
4: <laughs> yeah, even then, it really depends on what the exploit is. But yeah, that's true. At least the stuff he does usually has a significant impact on the game. But even that, sometimes I would grade as lower priority than something that would mislead rookie and advanced players alike in impact games, whether they like it or not. Because, like, unless the exploit is like breaking multiplayer or something, if people can use it or not, like, what's the difference? I mean, it'd be nice to get it out, but I don't see how it's a higher priority than something that n- negatively impacts players, regardless of what they choose and is as common or more. I, I think those are bigger issues in a game than the, most exploits. In the
1: case of multiplayer, if you've got a player who is repeatedly using an exploit like that, like you can kick that player
4: that's true although multiplayer is the strongest argument in removing an exploit true because that, that, that will ruin people's experiences but, yeah, it's a but it is also of a,
1: a self-regulating environment you know if a player is abusing that too much they're just nobody's going to play <laughs> multiplayer with them anymore
4: yeah but the more self-regulation you need the more obtrusive it is to get new players and the more you wind up with reign of terror hosts who definitely do not moderate evenly between their player base so it's it's good to cut down on that as much as possible yeah even then like something that will still hit those players negatively no matter what they choose i would still put as a higher priority because yeah you you can house rule something or kick somebody for doing something or whatever but if the game is adversely impacting players regardless of this then that's a bigger problem in my mind because now that you don't have a choice you just have a negative aspect of the game in the game no matter what you do
0: I will (laughs) quickly introduce this image. Now I'm going to put it up on the screen. We've got an image from Timothy Mulligan. And he wants to know why this city is not under siege. Okay, I think I know the answer to this. Let's see if anybody else knows what it is.
3: Uh,
1: Range doesn't count? uh, My guess is the governor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. uh, Because
1: I think Victor. Victor has a promotion that prevents a city from ever being able to put under siege. But yes. wouldn't you see the governor in the picture? You, you don't see the governor showing. Not it. if well. you don't have a spy or something in the city to tell you which governor it is.
4: Yeah, you don't just get to freely see hostile cities. Uh,
1: oh, I, this is a hostile city he's attacking.
4: Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah <laughs> Otherwise, he wouldn't be
3: sieging it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yes, but it show it has the little where you would normally see the governor. It's a question mark with a silhouette, so you yeah. know there's a governor there.
1: Yeah. Right. And I'm
3: and guessing that's the that only governor reason I big
4: can big big think of. That's the only explanation I could see, because it's surrounded on three sides by warriors. To our listening only audience. Later. I. I I like, think in those warriors, all have zone of control in the city. So the only explanation that makes sense is that it's Victor.
1: Right. Unless it's like a weird bug, but I, I'm pretty sure it's Victor. Yeah, and it's and I think if you had more diplomatic visibility in that civ or had a spy in the city, you would be able to see the um, portrait of which governor is in that city. And that would confirm it for you that it is, in fact, Victor. You wouldn't know which promotions that governor has for that civ, but you would you would know oh. that that's who it is.
4: You kind of do after the city heals, falls under siege.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's that too. I think there's an icon for when cities are under siege as well. So yeah, yeah.
2: it's a little heart thing that, that yeah. Shows you, there. you
1: don't even have to wait to see whether or not it can heal. It will show that as soon as you encircle it with your units. I didn't really. If you are it,
4: a defender, never allow this. Do not let people surround your cities. Put a couple units on one side of the city so they cannot surround it. Cannot siege it anyway. Especially, Especially in this.
1: Case where you've got the rivers and the forests yeah. and the hills that act as natural defenses. Like, they, sh- you should have put units... I'm assuming they're sieging the AI, and the AI wasn't smart enough to do that. Well, but yes. you, sh- you should put units... Uh, I don't know which direction the invader was coming from, but you should put units behind the river you know, on those hills, in those forests, so that they have to cross a river and attack you on unfavorable terrain in order to be able to put their units in that position to begin with.
4: Yeah, and river crossing is a pretty big movement penalty and a combat penalty. So by having unit, no matter which side they're attacking from, they cannot put the city itself under siege without crossing the river. So if you just put defensive units on the two tiles opposite the city, you, you make it much harder to take. Now they have to overpower the city's healing and you can shoot at them while they're doing that. So it's pretty difficult even one more unit past that and they probably can't take the city because they can only attack it from two directions and anything else will be very costly in movement and will let them be shot while not attacking you like if they try to go around the river and around your defensive units uh, in order to set up an attack later or something, you could just kill those units. So th- this is actually a good example of how-, how to set up a defense or how not to if you're the AI here.
1: And a case in point of what I was saying earlier, which is that more of the game should be focused on moving units out of the cities and fighting in the open field.
4: Although is just- how borders expand, I-, I think no matter what you do, people are going to favor defending within their territory because you can see the attackers that way. Yes, and that makes a big difference cuz it lets you know where to position your units and like what's hurt and what you can target. Like all that matters when you're fighting somebody who actually like tries. I know the AI's tactics suck, but assuming that's not in play and that the, your opponent is actually choosing to do things based on what he sees, having that vision advantage is a big deal.
2: I think it is. I didn't realize that it was Sparta that was is, sorry that it was the other player tamar that was actually asking the question. I thought it was Sparta was
1: asking why it was an under siege, but okay.
3: They're kind of thinking, shouldn't you be happy that it's not? Wait. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, oh. if, if the. User were playing as Sparta, then they would see which governor was in their own city. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. I I get it now, but uh, it's certainly an interesting discussion. But I think that I think Sparta's screwed actually without walls up, so but anyway,
1: very likely.
4: Yeah, the archers can wear it down. Well, (laughs) yeah, that the warriors would finish that.
1: Yeah, they didn't put units outside the cities to stop the attackers from getting there, and then they don't even have the walls to begin with. So yeah, it's Sparta's done for either way.
4: By the way, if you don't make a couple warriors and position them well, that'll happen to you on deity pretty often. Not always, but often enough.
1: Okay, so I guess that's it then, huh? No more topics for today. No more. So, thank you for listening. This has been Polycast, episode three hundred and forty-two. I have been Mega Bears fan, along with our guest host. Warning you two. Good night. And regular hosts, Canis Albinus. Something witty. Makalua,
3: Something caffeinated or a nap.
1: And the Mian team. As usual, the strategy
4: is surround and pound. Ouch.
3: Well, that is Phil's favorite.
4: It's effect- <laughs> it's an effective strategy in many games.
0: Why do I hear music in the background?
4: <sighs> I had a phone alarm on for some reason. It's out of reach. Uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. It's the same alarm my
2: my wife has. <laughs> uh
3: yeah mommy's is <laughs> it for something I was like wait I recognize this
4: yeah I'm not sure I can I'm not sure I can get to it from here it stops after one minute
0: yeah don't worry about it all right couple of you minutes I, I mean ding, ding,
4: ding. We, we've definitely had more compromising things on the show over the years I mean <laughs> the, the toilet
0: flush <laughs> yeah
3: uh, yeah Imran oh dear the toilet flush really
0: yeah, yeah. I want to say it was episode ago. 16 Somebody had to leave and then left the mic on.
3: on So he could hear his phone conversation about what they were going to go do and then heard the flush from the toilet.
4: (laughs) Fortunately, uh, back then they weren't doing the show live. So, (laughs) well, and just kind of edited that out.
3: It's only in the bloopers, but still, that (laughs) was like, what?
0: Record date July 13th, 2019. Civilization 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6 Sound Clips copyright Take 2
3: Interactive. Copyright The Polycast at thepolycast.net.